listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. How many of you are rule followers? You know, the kind where you, when you were growing up, you were devastated if you displeased or disappointed or disobeyed mom or dad or a teacher or someone in authority. So go ahead and just raise your hand if that was you. You were a rule follower. Okay, so maybe about a third of the room. So the rest of you are law breakers. So do you, those of you who raise your hand, just turn around and just, you just point at people because that's, you know, internally in your spirit is what you want to do anyway. Um, yeah, lots of law breakers out there. But those rule followers, I tell you what, you're the kind that when you saw the lights of the highway patrol in your rear view mirror, you began to question your value as a human being. You know, some of us are just rule followers. But here's what I know. Whether you're a rule follower or not, we are all lawbreakers. Uh, Every one of you have already broken several laws this week, and you don't even know it. I I was reading where Kim Bolin was saying back in like, in in 1980, a commission was put together to, to actually account and catalog the number of federal laws that there were. And uh, in 1984, they gave up the pro- project. Uh, couldn't come up. It's estimated there's now like 50,000 uh, rules, laws uh, that, that are out there. Of course, many are outdated. And that doesn't even include state law. I, I was looking at some state laws uh, this week. Did you know in Maryland, it's illegal to wear a sleeveless shirt in a public park. It's a $10 fine to do that. In Georgia, it's, it's against the law to have an ice cream cone in your back pocket on Sundays. <laughs> Why you would have a, ever have an ice cream in your back pocket? In Delaware, it is illegal to whisper in church. And that's a rule that should stand. But I've already broken two of those three state laws uh, in my life. Um, you can guess which one I haven't because we all know... An ice cream cone would never last long enough to be in my back pocket. It would be gone in a heartbeat. But the fact is, we're all law breakers, even the rule followers. It's been estimated that every one of us is breaking at least three laws every day that we don't even know about. And really, even for the rule followers, it's not like you just love rule books. It probably just makes you even feel more guilty. And very few of us enjoy reading a law book. I don't even think a lawyer enjoys reading a law book. Maybe, nope, he doesn't. We just don't, we get bogged down in all the details. And, and this is that point in time when I think for, as a church family here at Northside, a lot of you may be feeling like you're getting a little bogged down. We're in a year of Bible engagement and we're reading several chapters every day. And, and guess what, guys? This week we get out of those books that have been cataloged as the books of law. We finally get out of them. We've been in Genesis, Exodus. Yeah, there you go. All the lawbreakers are celebrating right now. Genesis, Exodus, Viticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament have been categorized as books of law. And this is often where a lot of people just abandon the whole Bible reading plan. They can't take it anymore. Someone has said that there's like 613 laws in those books, both positive and negative. And so it's just where we struggle. And I think there's different reasons for this. Some of these laws that you've been reading, if you're in Bible engagement with this, just don't seem applicable to you anymore. I mean, you you were reading 
just like a week ago, these rules like, you know, if your ox hurts or or kills someone else's ox and and, and it dies, then you have to sell the live ox and divide the money between you and take the dead ox and divide it between you equally as well. And a lot of you are just like, you know, I don't have an ox. I mean, my neighborhood association doesn't even want my trash can to be visible from the street. It's like I have a bush covering it. I doubt they want an ox, you know, grazing in the front lawn. So it just doesn't seem applicable anymore. And then some of these laws that we were reading were specific to the Israelite people, not only as a covenant people of God, but, but a lot of these laws were ceremonial laws, how they would come to approach God and worship and to be clean before God. And, and as people now under the new covenant, saved by grace through the blood of Jesus, we're not under those old ceremonial laws anymore, thank goodness. We don't have to follow those many ceremonial laws, which made us even have a greater appreciation for Jesus, the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. But, but you read through the, you struggled through the ceremonial laws because those didn't seem applicable to you as well. We skimmed over them. They, they were so foreign to us. But then I think another reason why many of us maybe get bogged down is because we are viewing God's words as rules to follow rather than a relationship to pursue. That that may be one of the biggest mind shifts we need to make. These are not rules to follow. This is really about a relationship to pursue. Not all of God's commands were ceremonial laws. I mean, some of these are moral laws that we are still obligated to obey today that teaches about morality and justice, right from wrong, good from evil. It it points us to the person and character of God, who he is. I I mean, these, these rules, these laws are very important for us. But I think we also should realize that these books of the Old Testament that have been categorized as law really are about a relationship with God. In fact, it's possible that our English translation of even a book like Deuteronomy, which you are finishing this week, the book of Deuteronomy, which we've translated as, it means second law. And and a lot of you, when you got to Deuteronomy, you're like, oh no, you know, I I, I don't want to, I had to go through this the first time. I don't want to have to do this again. And so it's seen as this second law. But maybe even that understanding of translation is hindering our ability to see that this is really about a relationship with God. In fact, if you have a Bible or device, I'd I'd like you to open up to the book of Deuteronomy right now. I want us to look at this book. Uh, We've been in a series uh, through the life of Moses. We now come to this book, which is really a book about his words, uh, his preaching. It's the the final sermons of his life, Uh, his words to the Israelite people before they go into the promised land. These first five books have been referred to as the Torah. And the last book of the Torah, the final book, is Deuteronomy. And all of these books are posing this one question, which is really about, do you trust Yahweh? Do you trust God? Will you trust him with your whole life? Will you entrust your life to him? These are books that are more than a a law book to skim through. These books become this constant reminder that we need to listen to the voice of God. We got to listen to his voice. Listen to the voice of Yahweh. You see, when the Bible was translated into Greek several centuries before Jesus, the most frequent translation of the Hebrew uh, word Torah When it was translated into Greek, it was translated as nomos, which in English became translated as law. So Hebrew, Torah, Greek, nomos, into English as law. But but according to John Carer, a Hebrew 
a Hebrew person would not say that these are laws, but they would say these are words. These are words. In Deuteronomy 1.1, these are the words that Moses spoke to Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan before they cross into the promised land. These are his words. In Deuteronomy 1.3, it says that Moses proclaimed. In verse 5, it says Moses explained. He expounded this law or these words of what God said. And so here they are on the edge of the promised land, finally getting to go in. And, and Moses is giving his end-of-life sermons, his collection of sermons. These are his, his words, which are communicating God's words to his people. Deuteronomy is pastoral, it's persuasive, it's passionate. And, and so the people are to listen. They're to listen to Yahweh's voice over every other voice. And John Carer, a professor at Ozark Christian College, he, uh, in his Next Level video series, uh, you can search for this, uh, even on YouTube, you can, go, you can search for, for Next Level, Ozark Christian College, John Carer, uh, his series on Deuteronomy is fantastic. And I've not listened to all of it, but I've listened to probably most of it. And, and much of what I'm going to share today are some really good insights that he shared about this book of Deuteronomy. And he says that when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 5, which is when we get to what we know as the Ten Commandments, he says we call them commandments. But the Hebrew word to reference this list of Ten Commandments is the word words. <laughs> it, we say Ten Commandments, but it's really, in Hebrew, it's really Ten Words. Hebrew has a, the Hebrew language has a word for commandments, and it's not the word that's used here in Deuteronomy 5. These are the Ten Words. Ten words that God wants to share with us. Ten words of God. Ten words that are establishing a covenant with his people. Ten words. It's like a marriage covenant with his people of relationship, of commitment, where vows are made. It's like the ten vows, the ten words of a, of a marriage covenant. And, and the, I, I know that in some of the reading that you've gone through, you've realized that that in this moment, as God meets with his people on the mountain, it's even clouded with some, some marriage symbolism. That in Exodus 19, in that text, when it, it talks about how the people of God came to the mountain, it was like a marriage ceremony. Just as a bride prepares herself for her groom, for the, the husband. So the people of God were to wash and to prepare themselves and to dress, to prepare themselves to come to God on that mountain. We, we know that the the Israelites were to get ready for that moment. And then we know that on the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a loud trumpet sounded, just like a trumpet would announce the groom's coming and the bride would come forth. So this is happening on this mountain as God comes to speak to his people where this marriage ceremony, a covenant ceremony is held. The whole mountain is covered in smoke and it's shook and it's this frightening, awesome sight. And Moses speaks to God and God speaks to the people, and he gives them his words, his covenant, his commitment, his relationship. Vows are exchanged here because the people said, we will do it. We will do this, just like a groom and his bride exchange words with one another, and they commit to do it. I do. You know, for me, this happened on June 18th. 1994, I don't know why I just looked at my notes. I didn't have to do, tell my wife, I didn't have to do that. I looked down, but I didn't need to. 
Hopefully she's coming to 1030. I won't do that at 1030. We were married on June 18th, 1994. Uh, She was 22. I was 13. Those glasses are starting to come back into style. I've been noticing some bigger ones coming. So it was cool then, I, I, supposedly. And um, so we got married on that day. Words were exchanged. And uh, even some of the people from Northside came because we, we were married on June 18th. We started Northside July 1st. And so uh, there we were in Joplin, Missouri, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, sickness and health. A, a covenant was made. And I didn't do it because I had to. It's because I, I wanted to. I loved her. I, I wanted to be with her for the rest of my life. It was exchanged. We were doing in that moment what happened many years before. On, June, on July 19th, 1969, when my mom and dad, Rick and Cheryl, they were joined in marriage. It'll be 53 years here in just a, a few months. We'll celebrate there anniversary, but they too made that commitment. Unbeknownst to my dad, as he kneeled at the altar on the bottom of his shoes, somebody had written, help me. (laughs) There was a picture of that too. But they covenanted that they would love one another. This is the, the kind of commitment that God is wanting to have with his people. A relationship, vows are exchanged. We Love each other with everything that we have. And these 10 principles, they form the identity of the whole community. It's not intended to be an exhaustive list. In fact, I think it, it, it just functions and forms what all of life is about. And he does it with 10 com- words to reflect perhaps the, the 10 fingers on our hand. It's easy to count. I know I've done this before, but it's how I remember the 10 words. One, have no other gods before me. Two, don't make for yourself an idol. Three words, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Four, honor the Sabbath day. Make it, keep it holy. Five, honor, honor your father and mother. Six, do not murder. Seven, don't commit adultery. Eight, don't steal. Don't take what's not yours. Nine, don't, don't lie. Don't hide something. 10, don't covet what is not yours. These are really words about relationship. The first four about a relationship with God and the last six about a relationship with people. It's forming who we are as a people so that we can serve and love God and love our neighbors. Before God gives these words, he says in Deuteronomy 5, 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm your God. I saved you. I rescued you. I came for you. I love you. I want a relationship with you. And this word number one, word number one that he gives us is you shall have no other gods before me. This is an exclusive relationship. There is to be no one else. This is monotheism, which was non-existent in the ancient world. It was unheard of. That that would be crazy. Why would you do that? Because back then people saw things that were happening around them in the world. And as John Carrer says, they saw it as being directly related to the heavens above. And so they had different gods for the different things that were happening around them. They, They chose their God based on what they felt that God would do for them. If they needed a crop, then they would worship that God of, of the crops. If they needed rain, it was the God of rain. If they needed fertility, it was the God of fertility. If they needed safety on the sea, it was that God as well. All these gods that they worshipped was gods that could make things work for them. 
And so you make sacrifices to these gods. You offer up food to these gods. You try to appease these gods. You don't want to anger these gods so that they will help you and in turn bless you. And God, Yahweh, speaks into this by saying, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. You are to have no other gods before me. He's saying, I am the only God that works. I'm the only one that works in your life. You can trust me. You come to me. Functionally, in the ancient world, for a God to exist, it it had to have a purpose. Otherwise, it didn't really exist. It had to have a function. It had to do something for you to exist. And so if you pray to Baal for rain and it happens to rain, then Baal works for you. And so he is your God. If a God doesn't work for you, it's no use to you. It's not that you would necessarily not say it works for someone else. It just doesn't work for you. But God is declaring to his people that these other gods do not work. They're not even real. These are fake. And this is why God sent these ten plagues to Egypt that we heard about and read about earlier. It wasn't just so that he could get Pharaoh to let the people go. The ten plagues were to demonstrate. That he was the one true God set apart and different from all the other gods that were worshipped. In fact, he, he was the God over all other gods. He had power over these gods. They weren't even real gods at all. This is why in Exodus 12, verse 12, God says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. He's, he's just transforming their worldview. There is one God. This is monotheism. He's the only God that works for them. He alone is Yahweh. And so all of life, everything I do changes because God is my only God. And so this number one word, have no other gods, it it is addressing the fact that they are so tempted to bring into their life these other things or these other gods that are really not gods at all, just like you are today. And John Carver mentions three of these that, that Moses is warning about in Deuteronomy that are showing up in Deuteronomy chapter six through eight. Three temptations that they face, three temptations you will face, which actually were the same three temptations that Jesus faced. The first one is abundance. The first one is abundance. He's warning them that you're going to be tempted to make abundance your God. You're going to replace God with something else. That Israel, when you, when you begin to have more prosperity, when you go into the land flowing with milk and honey, into the promised land, and you begin to experience all these many good things, and you begin to live in houses that... You did not build, build, and you, you get to enjoy the wells that you did not dig. You're going to have this temptation to forget Yahweh. You're going to become self-sustaining. You're going to begin to look to yourself and not to God, which is why in Deuteronomy 8.3, to battle the temptation, Moses reveals this. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In this covenant relationship with God, we're going to heed his word, listen to his word, obey his word. That, that the lessons that you learned in scarcity in the wilderness when you were in need and God was your provision, you need to remember that when you enter into a land where you have everything that you need and all those needs are taken care of. You need to remember that there's a temptation to abandon it. The second temptation that's mentioned here is the temptation of unbelief. Of unbelief. That when they enter into the land and many of the peoples around them, they're going to see them worshiping different gods. And he says you have to guard against the attitude of unbelief. 
that begins to stop trusting God and trusting his word and believing what he says. And he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And God says, you've got to remember that I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that brought you through the Red Sea. You need to remember, I'm the one that provided food and water for you in the wilderness when you needed it. When those moments when you began to complain, in those moments when you, you began to say, Why, we were better off in Egypt and, and I gave you water to drink, I gave you food. And you began to grumble even after those moments and I gave you more. It was a test. And God is letting them know you, you got to continue to trust in the Lord. You know, we, we read later in the New Testament, Hebrews 3.19, that they were, their parents were not able to enter into the promised land because of their unbelief. They were not believing and trusting in God. Refused to trust God, to listen to God, to follow God, to give God everything, which is, which is what you ought to do when you're in a marriage relationship, a covenant relationship. So they, their abundance and their unbelief led them away from the Lord. And another temptation they were going to face was syncretism, where you merge and you blend gods together with the true God, and this is going to work for me. God says, you worship me alone. You don't worship me among other gods you're going to arrive into a land where you see many neighbors and Canaanite neighbors and others worshiping the gods that they say work for them. And you're going to be tempted to do the same. But you worship me alone. Don't be tempted to worship those idols. You'll be devastated if you do. Don't put the Lord to test. And Ultimately, we know from history that the people of Israel failed. They failed miserably. They give in to all of these temptations. And it just leaves us wondering, is there anyone, is there anyone who is worthy, anyone who will actually be faithful to a marriage covenant? Is there anyone who will hear and heed these words that God is giving them on this mountain? And 1,500 years later, the answer was yes. It was yes in Jesus. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to this world in the first century. And when he came, he came as a man. In Matthew chapter 3, we read that Jesus passed through the waters of baptism just like the Israelites passed through the waters of the Red Sea. In Matthew chapter 4, we read that Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and nights just like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. There in the wilderness, he was fasting and he was praying and he'd gone without food and without drink. And it was in that moment, at his weakest moment, that Satan came to test him with the same temptations that happened to the people of Israel. And the first temptation was to turn stones into bread. A temptation of abundance. To be, to do it himself. To provide for his own needs and, and not to wait on God or be in the timing of God. And Jesus says, I don't need to prove that God is able to provide. I've learned to trust him in scarcity. I've tr trusted him in abundance. And Jesus quotes in this moment, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He had learned what the Israelite people were failing to learn, that he could trust in his father. He was in a covenant relationship with his father. He could remain in that relationship and trust him with much and with little. The second temptation of Jesus was to throw himself down off of, a, of the temple and that, that the angels would catch him and not let him be harmed. Prove you're the son of God. Prove that God will do it. Force God's hand. Demonstrate what everyone wants to know who you really are. But Jesus had learned from Israel's history. 
And he quotes in Deuteronomy 6.16, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He had learned in that moment what Israel was struggling to learn. That you don't test God in these ways. When you come under test, you put your trust in him. He was not going to listen to that temptation of unbelief. The third temptation that Jesus faced is when Satan told him to to worship him and he would receive all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you this. I'll give you all of this if you just worship me. This temptation of syncretism where you add me to your worship of God. But Jesus had learned the lessons that Israel was supposed to learn. I will not bow down. I will not fall prey to temptation. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. I will worship the Lord and serve him Only Jesus is clinging and hanging on to the very words that Moses is preaching to this people that are going to go into the promised land, that this is how you experience the blessings of God. This is how we live in a covenant relationship. And it just seems that we fail over and over again. But Jesus, he did not. He was perfect. He lived it perfectly. And he lived in this way. There's no other gods but the true God, Yahweh. He obeyed the first of these 10 words. It's about a relationship with God. And if you really look at your life, I know it's easy to point fingers at Israelites, but we too sometimes struggle with abundance, self-provision. We don't go to God. In fact, we seek our security in other things, in other people, in other places. We too can struggle with unbelief. We struggle to believe that God will do what he says he will do. When his timing isn't like our timing, we don't want to wait. And so we want to force his hand and we want it now instead of trusting him through the journey. We don't cling to his words. We, we cling to that which we think is going to work for us now. We too struggle with syncretism where we put our time and investments and money and energy and margin and resources and everything that we have. And we just, we just pour it into all these other things than the true God. And we just add it. We add it to what we do, what works for me. But over and over again throughout the book of Deuteronomy, what we see is that God wants a relationship with you. His words are to be living words. It's about having intimacy with God and trusting God and And I was just skimming through Deuteronomy uh, this week, and and I don't have time to even mention probably even one-fifth or six of all the ones that I highlighted. But just when you go through the book of Deuteronomy, there's this place and time and time again where you begin to see that God, he wants a relationship. He wants a familial family relationship. He wants closeness with you. He wants intimacy with you, with his people. We see this like in Deuteronomy 1, when God says, I'm going to go before you, I'll fight for you. And he says, in the wilderness, I carried you like a father carries his son all the way to the place until we reached it. I mean, it, that, that's familial talk, like a dad and, and his boy carrying you. Last night, we were celebrating my mom's birthday down in Joplin. My niece, man, she was just cuddling up to me and I was getting to hold her. She's a precious little thing. And I'm just telling you, it was so sweet. I didn't want to let her go. I didn't want to put her down, but I let her stay there with mom and dad. It's just this beautiful picture of what God wants for us. In Deuteronomy 4, 7, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord your God is near you whenever you pray to him? In Deuteronomy 4, 33, has any other people, do they hear the voice of God speaking out of the fire like you have and lived? 
In Deuteronomy 7, the Lord loved you. He's faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations to those who love him, who keep his words. The Lord your God is among you. He's with you. And God wants to see this covenant relationship where you lean into him and trust him and cling to him. In fact, there's that text in Deuteronomy 13 where God says at times he's going to test you to see if you truly love him. Like in Deuteronomy 13, he says, even if a prophet foretells a dream, a vision, and it appears and it happens, so a miraculous thing occurs. But then he goes on to say this, let us follow other gods, gods you've not known. Oh, there's more that you don't know yet. How about we follow these gods too? Let's add this to what we're doing. And in Deuteronomy 13, 3 through 4, it says, God says, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. God's testing to see, do you love him with everything that you have, everything that you are? That's really what these books are about. Are do you trust God or not? Are, are, you, are you going to submit your will to the Lord or not? Are, are you in this or not? It, it's the reason why for thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, in their devotion to God, that goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, listen, The Hebrew word is Shema. The goal of the Shema is to to listen to the voice of Yahweh. Hear so you can heed. Listen so that you can live out his instructions. It's not just about sound waves coming to your ears. It's about you obeying it, hearing it, and heeding it. If you really Shema the Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. It's how this begins. And I loved how on March 1st of our Bible engagement, that on that day in our links, there was a video from the Bible Project that was just incredible. In fact, there was a whole series of videos on the Shema. But on that one, it was, it was covering the last word of the Shema, strength. Because the text, the Shema, goes like this. It's, Deuteron- it's, it's uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. I loved how in that video, it talked about how the word strength there, the Hebrew word is miod. It's translated strength there. And yet it's the only place in all of the Bible where miod is translated strength. They said miod actually means much, very, everything. It's an adverb that intensifies the meaning of words. So like in Genesis chapter 1, when six times in creation, God says, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. But then the seventh time, he says, it was meod good. It was very much, much good. It, veriness, muchness good. And, and what we learn in this is that in the Shema, God is wanting us to love him, to love him with everything that we have. All of our capacity, all of our devotion, all of our muchness. We're to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. He wants us to be wholly devoted to him. And so when Jesus is quoting this, when he's asked about the greatest commandments, he says, love the Lord your God with all your 
heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus adds mind and power to describe this one word of muchness. Mind and power. It's everything that you have. You can love God in a number of ways. Miod means everything in your life, every moment, every opportunity, every ability, every capacity is a chance to love and honor the one who loves you, who made you, who's called you to be in a relationship with him. This is the meaning of, of Shema. This is the meaning of the books that we call law. It's that this is about a relationship with God. It's why Jews quoted it every morning and every evening. Why did they do that? I think the reason they do that is because we're prone to temptation. We're prone to fall to those very things that Israel fell into. We're prone to forsake this covenant relationship that we have with God. We need to be reminded of this every single day. Maybe you remember the hymn, Come Thou Fount. Of every blessing, tune my heart to sing that. Uh, there's this phrase in that song, you remember it? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Do you remember that phrase? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love. I think the reason that the Shema was being quoted so often is because we are prone to give in to temptation and to leave the God that we love. I mean, I feel that at times. I feel the, the temptation to drift, to drift into other things and allow the temptations of, of abundance and unbelief and syncretism to creep into my own life. But the book of Deuteronomy makes it very clear that if you would sustain this relationship with the Lord, pursue a relationship with the Lord, then what you will experience in life is b- blessings that will come on you. And yes, God is talking to his covenant people about them entering in the land and what he's going to do there in the promised land. But there's, there's much carryover for us as well. In Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 6, here are the blessings that God says come when we cling to him, when we're connected to him. He says, if you fully obey The Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today. The Lord your God will set you high above the nations on earth. And all these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock. The calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in. Blessed when you go out. If you would shema, if you hear and heed, listen and live out these words, blessings are going to come flooding into your life. Do you trust him for this? Do you believe this, even if the blessings that come are not the blessings that you're expecting to come? Will you trust him? In this, all of these blessings hinge on this one word, which is in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Shema. We have to hear and listen. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were unwilling to listen to Shema, the voice of God. It led to a separation between them and the Lord. So many curses came as a result of that. And what you need to know is in Deuteronomy 28, the whole rest of the chapter lists all the curses that come. When you do not cling to the words of God, when you do not Shema, the Lord, your God, And there's more curses than there are blessings. Why does the world look like it looks now? Why do we watch the news every single day? I know we're we're just drawn to it right now every single day to see what's happening in Ukraine. Why do we watch that and see such evil? Because people will not shema. They will not hear. They will not heed. 
They have not listened to the voice of the Lord. And this is what it looks like when we do it our own way. This is what it looks like when we say, God, we don't need you. This is what it looks like. And the fact is, in, in different ways, this happens in our own life too, when we're not in obedience to God and to his word, when we're not in pursuing that covenant relationship with him that we should. We have to follow him, follow him, believe in him. You know, when Jesus came and he was the only person that lived a perfect life, it's the reason he could become that perfect sacrifice for our sins. He followed God's law. He lived by the Shema. He, he heard and he heeded. He, he listened and he obeyed. He stayed faithful in his covenant relationship with the Father. And for each and every one of us, he's become our hope. Both for the rule followers and those who tend to push the envelope. Because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And in 1 John 2, 1 through 6, I just want to close with this. Here's what John says about this. He says, my children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. If you claim to live in him, if you claim to belong to him, if you claim to be in a covenant relationship with him, walk as Jesus walked, live as Jesus lived, do as Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? He did the Shema. And he followed the Lord God, the Father, with everything that he had. Every ounce of his being. He would say, not my will, but your will be done. And so if we want the blessing of God, we must live by his words. Now, if there's a moment when you don't, and you give in to temptation, you've got an advocate, the righteous one, who was the atoning sacrifice for your sins. He removed them. He took them away. He paid the price. He did it all for us. And if you've not yet made that decision to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life, if you've not been forgiven of your sins, which is only possible through the blood of Jesus, then we want to invite you to do that right now. Why would you put that off? Why would you wait? The blessing of God will come into your life when you do. And today we'd love to help talk with you and walk with you through that decision. We'd love to talk to you what it looks like to begin a relationship with Jesus as you put your faith and belief and trust in him, confessing him as Lord and believing in his name and repenting of those sins, being baptized into Christ. This is what God is calling for you to do. And we'd love to do that today. I'm going to be stepping out to decision point. In just a moment, I'd love to meet you there, talk with you there. If you're watching online, just go to northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. And that'll begin a relationship with us. Or if you're in the room, there's a card in the seat in front of you. You can grab that and Put it in a box as you leave today so that we can take that next step of faith. But also there's a prayer today that just says, God, help us to be faithful, to listen, to hear, to obey everything that you've commanded us. And so, Lord, that's what we're asking right now. 
that God, you would help us to align our hearts and our mind, our will to yours. We would pursue you with everything that we have, every opportunity, every capability. And Lord, we just surrender our lives to you right now. We want to give these lives to you. You are everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to our feet and sing, and I'll meet you right over here. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.